All right, here we are, uh, starting on a Monday of the last week of uh, His Radio Talk and the last week of this program. At least in this format. This is Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. Also serve as the Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. And I'm currently interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church in Simpsonville. We'll be glad for you to come join us one day. Uh, for worship and fellowship and all the good stuff that church provides as the body of Christ in our world. All right, um, as you heard, this is going to be the last week. It's a unique week. I mean, I you know, got a little emotional this weekend thinking about it. Um, been doing this for 20-plus years. And uh, to think that, I mean, you know, just, just coming, walking up to the door at this, at, you know, at, um, 5.55 or 5.40 or whenever it is I get here, most, most of the time before 6 o'clock in the morning, um, you know, all of that is, is this is it's going to be different. It's going to be a, a brand new routine. Um we are, we are going to celebrate a little bit this week um, in the sense that I'm going to have co-host at least on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I don't know about Friday yet, but Tuesday, Austin will be here to co-host with me. Wednesday, Corey's going to come in and co-host with me. And then on Thursday, Hannah is going to come and co-host with me, and we'll see what happens on Friday. I may... Um, we may, uh, I don't, I don't know what Lisa's schedule is this week. Um, I know she's been out of the country, <clears throat> but, um, if she's back, I'm hoping that maybe she can come in on Friday. Um, and maybe even Josh Kimbrell come by live instead of calling in on Friday. So, um, it's going to be a busy week, uh, probably be an, an emotional week for me, not going to lie, but, um, I did spend about three and a half hours on Saturday getting ready for the new show and the new format, and I'll tell you about that in just a minute. But just for those who um, have followed the show uh, for this number of years, I'll be saying more about thanking you for it a little bit later in the week. But um, today, I just I just want you to know that um, we are changing formats on Saturday, April 1st. I mean, that when, when I'm through on Friday morning at 9 o'clock, then that's it. For this show on his radio talk and then later that day his radio talk will become something else i don't know exactly when the cha- do you know what is it going to be midnight it'll be midnight midnight okay say midnight uh friday night which is will be april 1st um then the program will switch over to this station 919897 will switch over to music um if you want to follow me i'm going to continue to broadcast live I worked that out this weekend. Um, I've got a program. <clears throat> Actually, it required two. One uh, program to talk to another that allows me to populate while I'm doing my my show. I'll be able to throw it up on uh, the video, up live to Facebook and to YouTube at the same time. Now, rum- Rumble's going to be a while. Um I actually have to have five paid subscribers on Rumble before they'll start doing a video. It's not a free service. So um, I'm, I'm working on that. But 
but right off the bat on April 3rd, on that Monday, you should be able to go to drtonybeam.com. That's drtonybeam.com. And you'll find a website that says Truth in uh, Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. That's what the program is going to be called from now on, Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam at drtonybeam.com. You can go there, and there should be just a right there on the home page, there should be a little icon or button that says, Listen Live, Monday through Friday, 7.30 to 8.30 a.m. If you click on that, you should be able to hear a live stream um, right there on the website. Now, I think it's going to – actually, it's going to be streaming what's being done on YouTube. But you you won't have video there, but you'll be able to hear. Now, the, the button's not up there yet. So um, I'm working on – that's going to get done this week. I, I'm not sure exactly how or um, – or, but, but it will get done this week. So um, you will be able to, to access it when you go there, hopefully on April 3rd, and listen live. Then you'll be able to download the podcast. The podcast is going to be uploaded, uh, just like before, to all of the platforms that my podcast is available on now. Um, and, and we've got a brand new icon that's been designed for the, the program. Weren't able to get, we weren't able to get it uploaded uh, this past week, but uh, we're gonna we're working on that, and we we should be should be able to get it done here soon. Um, but the podcast will be available. You can subscribe to it for free. Uh, you can get it without any having to pay anything. It'll just come to your smartphone, and it'll be right at an hour, 55, 58 minutes, somewhere in that neighborhood. Might sometimes be uh, just over an hour, but I'm gonna keep it as close to an hour as possible. So you'll be able to, to pick it up anytime during the day, listen to it at your leisure, or for those of you who like doing Facebook Live in the mornings, when I hit live, that's one thing about it, when I hit go live on the computer program, it's going to be live. There's not a hang on a minute or wait a minute. When, when I hit that button, it's going to YouTube and to Facebook and, and you're going to be seeing me, uh, whatever I'm doing. So I've got to be sure that I'm set up and ready to go. But we're getting closer. Not quite completely there yet, but it looks like we're going to make it. I think all the things that need to be worked out will be accomplished this week, and we'll be ready to rock and roll with a brand-new program on April 3rd that you can access from the website. Okay, um, just a busy week this week. Uh, There's going to be a press conference on Wednesday down in Columbia dealing with judicial appointments, the way that in South Carolina we appoint judges. We're going to be calling for judicial reform, um, along with our Attorney General, Alan Wilson, who's going to make this a, a very much a, a center point of, of a push that he's going to be making for us to be able to get judicial reform in South Carolina. We, we need to fix the way that we elect judges. On Wednesday morning, the subcommittee, uh, a subcommittee in the Senate, is going to hear testimony on a couple of gender bills and both of those are very important. I'm not going to be able to be down there in Columbia live. I'm going to send a letter this week from the South Carolina Baptist Convention Office of Public Policy, but uh, can't go live because I'll be doing the show and the hearing is at 9 o'clock in the morning. And sometimes, you know, um, if it's extremely important, which this is, 
uh, I would get somebody to fill in for me and I would, you know, be down there at nine o'clock. But uh, not going to do that this week. I, my plans are to be here every day. Um, and as I said, with Austin on Tuesday, Corey on Wednesday, Hannah on Thursday, and then we'll see what happens for Friday. But uh, I'm, I'm, I may have to leave a little bit early tomorrow because I actually have to fly down to Atlanta tomorrow to be part of a panel before a pastor's uh, conference. And, uh, and then I'm speaking tomorrow night in Gaffney at uh, First Baptist Gaffney for a, a, a men's conference so or a men's meeting. So um, big day, busy day tomorrow. Wednesday will be a busy day. Thursday I have to go to Beaufort after the show. And uh, so just, you know, <laughs> it's going to be a busy week trying to uh, finish plans to get ready for the new program, wrapping up this program, and all the things that will happen in between. Jim's on the phone. Jim, go ahead. Good morning. I want to thank you. I've lost track of time. It's been two or three years since I've been listening to you, and I've really enjoyed it. Uh, uh, I'm glad you're having some of your former co-hosts. One of them I will really enjoy will be Lisa. If you can give her get her thoughts about you and Gary, it was very interesting. She gave a, a summation of talk program and what it, what it has been, and she was very good at that. So I think that'd be very much worthwhile. One thing I would like to see since this is a Christian worldview, if possibly you could take four texts for the four, next four days of your testimony of what Jesus has meant to you, like a devotion like you did for a while. I really enjoyed those devotions. So I really want to thank you from here from Chattanooga listening to your program. Maybe okay. now I can spend more time with my wife in the morning instead of listening for two hours to this. But well, I have really enjoyed it. Just want to thank you. you. Well, you're welcome. And you can listen to an hour of it if you want to. All you have to do is... And if you, I mean, just go to the website. I'm assuming in Chattanooga you're listening on a website now. So all you have to do is switch websites. You can go to Dr. Tony one Beam. Of days, what? One of these days I'd like to see your school. And when I get enough money, I want to come over and buy you lunch one day just to sit and eat with you. That'd be great, Jim. Did you hear what I say on, about the website, drtonybeam.com? You can still listen live from 730 to 830. Look forward to the day you take some of your callers again because you, you've really got some good callers. Yeah, you really do. Yeah, I, I put you among among those. Uh, okay, Jim, thank you. I appreciate it very much. Um, I hope many of you will uh, continue to listen on the website, um, and I hope we can build a podcast audience, um, build it up from what we have now. Several things for us to get into. First of all, there's a story today out by the Associated Press. Um, okay, what happened to my story? Well, that's interesting. It just, uh, I touched, oh, okay, there it is. Story out today by the Associated Press, it's, it's in the Greenville News. The title is Green McCarthy Pull Closer to Rioters. A D.C. jail visit illustrative of attempt inside GOP to rewrite January 6th history. Now, this is, when, when you start talking about rewriting history, for progressives to be, uh, accusing Republicans, conservatives, of rewriting history is a joke. I mean, it should be seen and heard just as a cruel joke and projection at its finest. Because, in fact, it's progressives that try to rewrite history, whether it's the 1619 Project, which they literally, literally are rewriting history to make it sound as if the United States was founded 
because of slavery and on the issue of slavery and to perpetuate the issue of slavery. It's a pack of lies. It's a total revision of history that is inaccurate and has been challenged by people on both sides of this issue. In other words, people who are progressive, that are historians, that actually have a genuine concern for history as it happened, are they're pushing back against the 1619 Project because of its glaring historical inaccuracies, and yet it rolls merrily along as if, and it's being taught in school systems across the country, as if it's fact. So for, you know, for progressives who have been, that 1619 Project is probably the most glaring example of intent, the intentional rewriting of history. But progressives have been doing this for a long time. And I don't think what Marjorie Taylor Greene and Kevin McCarthy are doing has nothing to do with rewriting history. It has everything to do with setting history straight as we are still close enough to this event to be able to, to the January 6th event, to be able to accurately point out how the media has mischaracterized the event from the beginning. Now, I've been very clear on this program. People can go back. They can listen to previous programs. I've, I've condemned and I, stink, I continued, continue to condemn without equivocation the events on January 6th. I, it, it, was, it was a terrible day in American history. But it was not as the progressives all the way up to President Biden have said that it was the worst day, the greatest threat to democracy since the Civil War. I mean, the, the, the biggest attack on America since the Civil War, the, the largest attack on our value system— um, when in order to get there, you have to jump over so much history. You have to you talk about rewriting history. Evidently, the Biden administration and progressives who follow that line of thinking have completely forgotten about 9-11 when 3,000 Americans died. They've completely forgotten about World War II, the attack on Pearl Harbor, when 3,000 to 5,000 Americans died. They've forgotten about actual incursions into the Capitol that left people dead. They've forgotten about, well, how about, you, you know, if you want to go, well, they said from, from the Civil War, so we'll, we'll, we won't go back further than the Civil War. But they've forgotten about Weather Underground, who set off bombs in the U.S. Capitol and tried to undermine our constitutional way of life. I mean, all of those things have taken place, but they're just being expunged. They're being, no, 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 we can't talk about any of those things because of January 6th. And then the January 6th committee was one of the greatest examples of farcical com a committee hearing in history. I mean, it was, it was terrible. They didn't present any challenge to any of the witnesses. 
They didn't have anybody question the witnesses. The witnesses were allowed to just come up there, say anything they want. None of what they said was put under a microscope to find out if it was true. We find out later that many of that, well, not many, but some of the witnesses' testimony could not be corroborated. Some of it was actually proven to be false. So, and, and, and of course, you know, the portrayal of Josh Hawley running down the hall. And we, we've talked about this, that the idea that he was a coward because he was running out of the Capitol at the same time that he was part of those who were calling people to protest. And we dem- it's been demonstrated that that was a, that was a lie. It was, it was a complete distortion of what happened on that day. And there have been plenty of others. I mean, and we've, we've chronicled them on this program multiple times. So I'm not going to go back into all of them now. But Brian Sicknick, of course, um, the Capitol Police officer who tragically died from a stroke the day after the Capitol incursion. You know, the, the Capitol riots have been called an insurrection, and yet, and that's the word that you hear most closely associated with it, and yet to date, of all the people who have been tried and convicted of crimes associated with January the 6th, not one person has even been charged with insurrection because that's a very specific charge. And prosecutors understand that no one who is at the Capitol that day meets the criteria for an insurrection. But that doesn't keep many people in the mainstream media um, and, uh, you know, progressives from using that term because it's a strong term. It elicits strong emotions and responses from the people that hear it. And whether it's true or not makes no difference to them. None. So the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene um, went by the District of Columbia jail to check on conditions for the January 6th defendants with Republican lawmakers, this is according to Lisa uh, Mascaro, who's writing for the Associated Press, hand, handshaking and high-fiving the prisoners who chanted, let's go, Brandon, which is a coded vulgarity against President Joe Biden. I mean, I mean look. I've never I've, I've said from the beginning as as people of faith, as Christians, uh, vulgarity doesn't have any place in public discourse. I mean, if we have to if we have to result and I know people laugh at this and they think it's funny um, and, and they they just they love it because it's, you know, a way to express derision for national leaders. And if, if we're going to I mean, I. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ first. I'm not going to put my politics in front of my call as a believer. And I know a lot of people says, well, that makes you weak. Well, you know, you could have said that about Jesus. I guess what, you know, Jesus, when he was up in front of Pilate, he didn't say anything to defend himself. Um, Jesus willingly went to the cross Jesus, you know, does does that make Jesus weak? I mean, w- would they characterize Jesus because he didn't storm in front of Pilate, call him a bunch of names that he made up for him, and you know, what what how we define weakness and how we define strength in the light of the Scripture should be that we as believers define it the way the Bible does. 
And even for strength, there's the strength of 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 real leadership is humility and self-seeking and well not self-seeking but self-sacrifice I should have said it's not this idea of strength for the sake of strength the strength that's projected by arrogance or projected by if anybody crosses me then you're toast kind of mindset i mean that's if if you want to hold that fine but please don't self-identify as a christian and then take those attributes with you into the public arena and behave as if the bible has nothing to say about the way that we're supposed to have conversations with other people so i just wanted to get get that out get that off my chest there's there's no place in a life that follows Christ or honors God or lives a life that brings glory to, to Jesus Christ, there's no place in that life for, for vulgarity. If vulgarity is exhibited by a Christian, it should be acknowledged as sin and confessed, and then we move on and we, we leave it behind. But back to this story. Um, you know, you've got Green and McCarthy— uh, going and checking out the prison. You've got them talking to to prisoners who are awaiting trial. And then over here in the story, it's it's amazing um, that this this part kind of gets buried. Uh, Democrats on the tour, because they were there were, you see, it wasn't just Marjorie Taylor Greene. It was Democrats that toured the jail. Democrats on the tour said that it's categorically false that the January 6th defendants are being treated as political prisoners for their belief. While the local jail has come, has long been the subject of complaints, the U.S. Marshals made plans to relocate 400 detainees after a surprise 2021 inspection found parts of the facility did not meet the minimum standards. The January 6th defendants have been housed in a newer wing that was not cited as problematic in the Marshals' statement. The two Democrats who joined the tour as members of the House Oversight Committee said they both had visited detention facilities before. It's as probably as, probably as good as a jail can be, said Representative Jasmine Crockett, Democrat Texas, a former public defender. Now, what's interesting about that, you take any one of these Democrats down to the border with, with a Republican in the White House, and what they'll do is they'll begin to talk about any detention of any immigrant is a crime. It's just horrible, the conditions that they're being held under. And here you have a jail where inspectors made an inspri- a surprise inspection after complaints were being lodged by people that were being held because of 9-11, their activities on 9-11, and 400 had to be moved to a newer facility. Now, where where have you seen that story? Was that on the headline in the headlines of the New York Times? Was that above the fold? Would it make the Washington Post? Did it even make the Wall Street Journal? I mean, I, if it did, I don't remember. So here's, here's the point that I'm trying to make with all of this. Janu- everything in our world today, everything is politicized by one side and the other to put a spotlight on their their the advancement of their agenda 
So to find the truth about what happened on January 6th, there has to be some balance. Yes, it was a terrible event. Yes, it shouldn't have happened. Yes, people were misled. But were there people walking around in the Capitol who went in the building after it was opened, uh, opened up, not realizing or, or, or and not being there for any malicious reason? I have no doubt that's true. It's not wrong to point that out. That's part of the history of what actually happened. It's not wrong to point out that Brian Sicknick was shown on video walking around in the U.S. Capitol hours after news media reports were stating that he had been killed or um, assaulted by being hit in the head with a fire extinguisher. I mean, all of these things need to be taken into consideration. And it should be Democrats and Republicans that are concerned about the truth regarding January 6th. But instead, you've got Democrats pushing and demagoguing that day because they believe that it's a hammer that they can bring against Republicans. They try to paint every Republican as someone who would have been part of that day, they just couldn't get to Washington, or or they they you know they, they didn't have the money, or that. But but every Republican in the country, if all of them could have been in Washington, they would have all been in there calling for Mike Pence to be hanged as a traitor, and sitting in Nancy Pelosi's office. That that is not true, but that is a revision of history. That is a rewriting of what actually happened. And to get to the truth, we need to cut through the rhetoric coming from both sides and be honest about that day. It was a terrible day. It was not the worst day since the Civil War. It was a terrible day, but it also contained injustice for the way some people were being treated. I mean, those things can all be true at the same time. And when every time a news media outlet calls it a deadly day, think Ashley Babbitt. Ashley Babbitt died that day as a direct result of the Capitol riots or whatever you want to call them. I think riot would be the best term. There were Capitol police officers that were assaulted and hurt that day. The people who did that should come to justice. And I, I have no problem with that. But I have a big problem with the day being tied to every Republican. I have a big problem with the day being portrayed as the worst day in American history. I have a big problem with the Democrats rewriting, with progressives rewriting of, of that day and recasting it and reframing it, which was what all this is what all the committee was about, as painting all conservatives as being re rebelling against the American government. That is not true, and that needs to be corrected. We don't need to whitewash the bad things that happened that day, the Capitol Police that got injured, the, the property that was destroyed. We don't need to whitewash any of that, but neither do we need to magnify it into something that it was not. You know, American politics is is an incredible place right now. Um, you know, the, it, let's just take one issue, and I think I can demonstrate what I'm talking about. When when I when I say that American politics is an incredible place, 
I mean that there are dogmatic absolutist on every side of an of an issue to the point that we can't even fairly or accurately assess decisions that are being made about an issue that's very serious because we have to constantly frame every decision and every move in terms of what's politically expedient for the person who's talking. And that's probably no more true than the Russia-Ukraine war right now. I mean, it, de- it depends on where you're coming from. There, there are at least three, and I think there's very many more than this, but let's talk about the three main factions that are involved in the Russia-Ukraine war. You have the people who are described as neocons. Uh, they're described as being uh, purveyors of the military-industrial complex and that, that all they want is perpetual war for financial gain, um, and they're the ones that say the United States has absolutely no place being over sending aid to Ukraine. Uh, we should be using that money to fight drugs here at home. We should be using that money to build infrastructure. We should be, and then you you can fill in the blanks. I mean, they can come up with a hundred different ways that we could be using that money. Now, that's that's a tried and true political tactic, by the way. I mean, that's if, if you want to attack something that's happening, then you distract people from what's actually from what's happening by suggesting that there's all these other things that could be done if we weren't doing the thing that we're attacking. And I mean, that gets that that's a worn political strategy, and it's one that you should be aware of and never fall for, because once we stop doing the thing that the people are attacking and using that strategy, all of a sudden they become silent about using the money to do these other things, to reduce the national debt, to stop the fentanyl disaster that's happening in our country, to shore up our border, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's it's a tactic. You need to understand that that that, that particular way of thinking is a tactic or it's, it's used by people who believe that we have no business being sending any aid or support to Ukraine because there's no American interest on the table. So that's one group. Then the other group says, you know, we, we need to be in there defending Ukraine. We need to be pouring more resources into Ukraine, not less. President Biden is taking an incrementalist approach that's going to destroy our ability to win, to help the Ukrainians win this battle. And we, we need to find a way to get in there and win the war, put in enough aid to push Putin back because the United States has a national interest. And the national interest is to lessen uh, a, a tyrannical dictator's ability to wage war. It is to uh, make sure that Putin understands that he can't go after NATO countries in the same way that he's going after Ukraine, that Putin would do that if the United States showed weakness, if Ukraine had been bowled over in the beginning without U.S. and European support, then Putin would already have been in Moldova. He would already have been in other former Soviet satellite countries because what he really wants is a reconstitution of the Soviet empire and on and on and on. I mean, that's 
those are some of the reasons that the hawks for support for Ukraine would give. And then there's a third group that just thinks Vladimir Putin is the greatest thing that's ever come down the pike. They, they compare him to President Trump. They talk about him being a strong leader. They talk about him being a moral leader because he doesn't l- allow LGBTQ plus things to go, to go on in Russia and that he's actually a, a, a strong believer in God and that with that we should be he's some kind of person that we should get behind. So you've got people who believe that, you got people who believe that the war in Ukraine is we need to be in a hundred percent. Why haven't we sent planes? Why haven't we sent sophisticated weaponry? And then you've got people who believe that we never should have been there in any sense whatsoever. Now, you know what the truth is? It's somewhere in between. Now there's to me, there's, there may be truth in that Russia doesn't allow some of the immorality that the United States has embraced fully. That doesn't make Vladimir Putin a hero. The way that they don't allow it is by taking away people's freedoms, by threatening people that they disagree with. That is not something that Christians or Americans should be celebrating. The type of roughshod leadership that Vladimir Putin puts on his own people and the disregard for what anybody in the world, the rest of the world, thinks, the use of the Russian military to go after other countries, sovereign countries, um, I, I mean, all of that should be condemned. We, we shouldn't have a problem with that. We can acknowledge some of the things that are being said about Putin in terms of internally and Russia that those things are true, but if you only look at that part of the picture, you come out with a Vladimir Putin that looks like a John Wayne character that we, we should somehow get behind and support. And, and that's just, that's, that's, there's, there's no truth in that. Well, that's a, a very poor way to look at it. Now, I also think that an un, when, when you start looking at support for Ukraine, I think supporting Ukraine as far as American interests are concerned, um, if, if you don't think that it is, an, it is an Amer- America's best interest to stop Vladimir Putin's aggressive moves in Europe and to push back when he decides he can just go into any country, particularly a country that we have a treaty with that calls on the United States to offer support and to protect them if they gave up their nuclear weapons. We gave a our word as a country that we would do this. Does that require... In, 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 in a reasonable way, some type of military support to keep Ukraine from being gobbled up by Russia? I think it does. I also think that there has to be an off-ramp. I also think that we can't perpetually provide aid to Ukraine and just simply, if, if we're going to be doing nothing but providing for a standoff. If the Ukrainians can't win, if they can't militarily defeat the Russians, and there's a big debate going on about whether or not that's possible. Some say that it is. Some say that they could never fully uh, eject Russia from Ukrainian territory. So, but, but here's the thing. 
the the middle ground is to get Zelensky, who is absolutely his power is dependent upon U.S. and European aid. If that aid comes to an end, Russia will go in there and they will re-attack Kiev and take the whole place over. So we've got leverage. We can go to Zelensky and say, okay, we've pushed the Russian bear back to the point that he's not been able to just waltz in here and take over your country. Now find a way to compromise sit down and work out a way for this war to come to an end. I think that's a reasonable request of the United States and our European allies. If we're going to continue to prop you up, then come back to us and tell us how much longer this is going to take and what you're willing to do to help bring this conflict to a close. That's a reasonable expectation. I think it's and, and for those who are calling on accountability for where the money's going, totally reasonable. You know, for those who question, who raise legitimate questions about United States interest, those things should be included in the conversation. But we should be able to have this conversation about what's best about our involvement in Ukraine apart from the political baggage that makes it impossible for us to have that conversation in any way that's going to reach a solution. We've got to leave the politics of it behind for a minute and have honest conversations about what we're doing there, how long we're going to do it, and what our expectations should be. I mean, some people say we don't we don't have a right to have any expectations. Are you kidding me? I mean, you know how much money we've spent over there? Do you not do you know that without United States support, I mean Russia's landing planes wherever they want in Ukraine. That don't don't say that we don't have leverage or that we don't have anything to say about it. We have a lot to say about it. And and we should be able to go in and help broker and find a compromise. That would be the right path and it's the middle path. It's the path that says, okay, defending Ukraine has its benefits constant forever war with Russia is not an option. And so expanding that war outside the boundaries of Ukraine and Russia is not an option. What is the solution? Let's come to the table and figure that out. But we got to stop yelling at each other over the table to start with. All right. The thing that got me on this today was a column at the Daily Signal by Josh Hammer. Now, now Josh Hammer is a syndicated columnist, he's an opinion editor at Newsweek, and he's a research fellow with the Edmund Burke Foundation. Edmund Burke Foundation is a conservative-style think tank, and I, I don't know enough about it to be able to tell you all the ins and outs of where they're coming from. But, you know, I, I can tell you that Josh Hammer's approach to the problem of what needs to be done in Ukraine is not helpful because of the way that he approaches it. Listen to this. He's he's defending Ron DeSantis, which I, I think when you know Ron DeSantis recently told Tucker Carlson that he thinks that the United States doesn't have any national security issues involved in the war with Ukraine and that we need to be looking for a solution. Um, so Ron DeSantis, he's he's not he's he's the governor of Florida right now. It's presumed that he will be a Republican candidate for president. It's also presumed that he will be the major Republican candidate 
to take on Donald Trump. Now, none of that is written in stone. A month ago, it looked like Ron DeSantis was going to steamroll Trump. Today, it looks like Trump has regained his, his momentum. And a lot of it has centered around the way that he's responded to the potential of charges coming against him in New York. Um, he's so inside the head of people who hate him the most that they can't even tell when they're helping get his base to continue to coalesce around him and actually bringing other Republicans to the table because they believe he's being unfairly treated. I mean, that, evidently, the, the people that are after him can't see that or they would stop it, presumably, unless you buy into the theory that what the Democrats really want is for Trump to be the nominee because they believe they can beat him. And one of the things that's interesting, that as Trump's stock rises within the Republican uh, electorate, his stock with the country as a whole goes down as a rule. I mean, I think it is totally possible that Trump could be nominated again and that he would lose to Joe Biden again. Now, there are people who think that that's absolutely impossible unless that that there's cheating going on well there'll be some cheating going on but the the truth is that outside of the republican party where you have a base of support of about 30 to 35 percent that are loyal to trump no matter what then you have republicans who are afraid of him because they know that if they cross him he can come after them and hurt their re-election chances although after the 2020 uh, 2022 midterms, that looks less likely. But still, you don't want to be on Trump's blacklist. He just came out the other day and basically said he would blacklist anybody who works for Ron DeSantis. So if you support Ron DeSantis in any of the states, you're blacklisted by President Trump. And Republicans used to hate that kind of thing. But not when Trump does it. When Trump does it, if, if, the, if the left does it, it's terrible. If Trump does it, it's perfectly reasonable. So anyway, he, here's, here's Josh Hammer. This is, let me just read the first two paragraphs, and it'll illustrate how this is not the way that you try to win people over to your way of thinking. At least, to me, it's not the way. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' written statement to Tucker Carlson heard around the world earlier this month on the Russia-Ukraine war has caused nothing short of a full-scale meltdown from the arrogant, consistently wrong-thinking, military-industrial complex-added band of bipartisan dunderheads who collectively comprise the American ruling class's foreign policy blob. The reality is that the governor should wear the blob's dripping scorn as a badge of honor. These blobsters, oftentimes think tank and punditry boomers or Gen Xers who came of political age during the Cold War, typically suffer from a first principles level delusion about whether America's triumphalist post-Cold War unipolar moment still exists. It does not. According, accordingly, blobsters know one modus operandi only, more intervention and more escalation. Now, if you agree with his viewpoint, you're going, yeah, yeah, listen, go get them. Call them blobsters. Call them, what else we got in here? We got the ruling class, the industrial complex, bipartisan dunderheads. Yes, yes, go after all those people. Because that's the way you win people over to a way of thinking. You insult them into it. You bully them into it. 
And ever since Donald Trump came on the scene, Republicans have actually become fans of bullying. Oh, it's a good thing to bully people. It's a good thing to call them names. Ah, oh, that's funny. Listen to that new name. We we love this kind of political discourse. Let me tell you something. That kind of political discourse is disingenuous, and it doesn't get us anywhere. I mean, you can we please be honest for a second? Does anybody think that people who are characterized in such a way are just going to go, oh, oh, I'm sorry. You're right. I, I, I've seen the error of my ways. Your insults have caused me to humble myself in front of your great power. Of course not. That's not how any of this works. You come after people like this, and they immediately push back. And the click numbers go up on websites, and people get mad, and, and we like mad. Mad is a good thing in our culture. It makes us feel good. It, it, it causes us to get the adrenaline pumping. I'm telling you something. We're, we can't come to solutions if we're not willing to intelligently and in a manner that's respectful to everybody engaged in the debate, sit down and have this conversation. And I know, I know people are yelling at me right now. Going, well, you're just a mealy mouth. I'll be back and be mealy mouth an hour or two. Stay with us. <laughs>